great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. And today we continue our Green Party of Canada Leadership Candidate Series. We chat today with Dr. Courtney Howard. Dr. Howard and I chat about her life, her bid for the Green Party of Canada Leadership, and how she believes her vision for Canada will connect with voters from coast to coast to coast. So here is Cross-Border Interviews featuring Dr. Courtney Howard. Dr. Howard, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. We won't take up much of your time because like we said beforehand in our pre-interview, you have things to do and you have Canadians to meet from coast to coast to coast. Uh, before I start, I ask the same question to all, all my politicians that I interview. Where does your sense of duty come from? I think as an emergency doctor, we're often the people who are up close and personal with everything that's falling through the cracks and everybody who's being affected by that. So often in Yellowknife, we're the only place that's open at 2 a.m. on a given day. And so you end up having really in-depth conversations with a really broad range of people about what's the most important thing in their lives at a given day. And you end up doing a lot of really practical problem solving about things that you wouldn't maybe expect to have ended up in the hospital, um, you know, about housing, about poverty, racism, um, you know, different aspects up here, particularly uh, post-residential school trauma. And so I think there are very few eMERGE docs who can make it through a whole career without eventually starting to want to go upstream because you see you really are very much witness to this very human level suffering and it's hard to see that and you want to be able to fix problems for more people to prevent it. And so I think that the sense of duty comes from, you know, I've been an eMERGE doc for close to sort of in practice for I think 12 years now. And, you know, at the bedside in Canadian hospitals since about 20, 2001 is when we started in first year med. And so collecting stories, uh, collecting experiences and starting to put a framework together in terms of how I would like to see systems change. And so at this moment in the pandemic, it's become so clear that politics is really a determinant of health that it felt like we're at such a period of instability that it really matters exactly what we do right now and the stories we're telling as a nation and the narratives that we're highlighting and the vision we're setting. I think it probably matters more now than at any other point in my adult life. So it seemed like a good time to be moving from the bedside uh, a little further upstream. 
Oh, now, um, why politics? Uh, it seems to be a jump from someone of your resume, of your background, to jump into federal politics right off the bat. Uh, people know you across Canada. You've written uh, articles and they've been published worldwide. Why jump into politics and why the Green Party of Canada? Because I think most people will, would want to know that. Yeah, so I've really... Uh run the gamut of ways to try to influence this system um, to try to get evidence-based policy implemented in the real world. And so I've done research and I've, I did the first uh, randomized controlled trial on menstrual cups, which I started as a medical resident when I realized that nobody had actually checked to see whether tampons or menstrual cups were more acceptable to women, which seemed to me to be absolutely Uh, difficult to believe given that menstrual cups at the time had already been around for 40 years. And so I was curious and I wanted to know. So I did that and I've researched wildfires and their impacts on respiratory health and mental health up here. And then once you learn answers from these things, you want to create policies so that you can change the world to try to prevent, you know, that suffering that again you saw or to try to change the systems to make, you know, something reusable, more easy to access for people. And so then I've done a lot of policy work which is where you take the evidence and you say, okay, well, based on this and this moment in time, we should do X, Y, or Z. And now you have a document that if you've been lucky, you've managed to get decently formatted. So somebody might actually want to take a look at it. And now you have to get that in front of somebody who can make decisions about it. So you have to spend a bunch of time trying to get meetings and traveling. And then you may or may not be the the loudest, most persuasive voice in terms of trying to ask a, a policymaker to implement your idea instead of somebody else's idea. And so I've actually not only done a lot of that myself, but I've really done a lot of mentoring of other doctors and academics in how to do that. So I've run like internationally um, different kinds of uh, conference sessions on advocacy and communication skills and media skills. And there's a real malalignment right now of incentives within the academic community to try to influence policy. So if you're an, you know, a usual academic, you're kind of graded within your job in terms of publishing, um, in terms of the conferences you present at, but there's not a lot that sort of encourages you to get out of your office and go talk to politicians. And meanwhile, we're spending a lot of time, um, you know, bemoaning and what they're calling an infodemic, you know, an epidemic of misinformation. And so our academic incentives aren't actually aligned with what we need as a society. And so I've been sort of doing my best to to bridge the gap um, from the other side. And at a certain point, I thought to myself, well, I think I've kind of really lived this for a while and I've done a lot of teaching Uh, to help communicate what I've learned. I think if I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, I better figure out how things work on the other side of this, inside the houses where decisions are being made. You know, I've, I've learned in medicine that you learn the best, you learn the most when you're at the sort of uncomfortable uh, part of the learning slope. And, you know, it, it felt like a really good moment to be taking that on. And actually I've already learned some things that I've fed back to the academic community in terms of potential changes in practice um, to help to bridge this divide. Because if we keep, you know, being two solitudes with a bunch of people over here doing research and then grumping that their (laughs) research isn't being implemented, and then a bunch of poor politicians who don't actually know 
who to go talk to, who the expert is in an area. And then even if they do find the expert, maybe the expert's going to give them a, you know, a 200 page paper in 12 point font that they don't have enough time to, to read. So there's a lot of bridging that needs to happen if we want to be living in a world that has evidence-based ethics driven policy. And so I'm really doing what I can to bridge that. And so the reason I thought that the Green Party would be the best place to go um, is that they do have, number one, I I uh, don't sleep well and my conscience isn't um, sort of satisfied. And I think I would have a hard time uh, in a party that whipped its vote for that reason. And so that was actually a huge uh, reason for me to choose the Green Party. And I think that a lot of people who um, do really value evidence would feel the same way because that way... I feel that, you know, if there's ever a motion that I'm being encouraged to vote for that I just absolutely can't stand behind, um, I, I, I can vote according to my conscience and according to what I know to be factually accurate. And so that's probably the biggest reason why I was even willing to consider going into politics um, with the Green Party. And in terms of this position, I've done a lot of work and thinking around uh, narrative and story in its role in essentially policy processes. We, and this starts from me always giving too many facts in a given interview. So, you know, my, my first interviews back here, you know, 10 years ago were just me rattling off a list of facts <laughs> and the radio host going, um, yeah, okay, Dr. Howard. And, you know, you, you do this over and over and you realize that the things that connect with people are actually the stories that, that we tell and that matters. And so something that we can bring, I've noticed as docs is we, 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 we end up having so many people's stories cross our paths. And so I think that um, something that the leader of the Green Party really has an opportunity to do is speak to a lot of Canadians and weave narratives from different Canadians into the reasons why you want to make life better and you want to create evidence-based policy. And so I think that um, from, a, from a messenger standpoint, there's a lot that I can offer um, just from having been at the bedside. I've worked in, worked in training in BC and Ontario and Quebec, Nunavut and uh, NWT. And we interact all the time with Alberta um, system because you're a referral center. And so I, you know, have colleagues from across Canada. I hear stories from across Canada. And so it's really this combination. Uh, I think there is an opportunity for the Green Party to uh, redefine itself essentially as a party of planetary health. Um, it can be evidence-based, ethics-driven, and the opportunity of telling the narratives um, as the party leader is important to me in setting the agenda from a, helping to set the agenda from a policy perspective. Which is awesome. So, uh, uh, if if you, if uh, for your information, the last half of this interview is going to be about policy. So we're going to be able to tell some of those stories. The first half is about you, who you are. Um, but I want to pick up on something that you just mentioned about the disconnect between academic uh, Canadians and politicians. How there's that uh, divide that the academic side doesn't really know how to communicate with the politician side, and the politicians don't know who to look for. Why do you think that is? Why why has it why has academic Canada had a hard time connecting with politicians? Yeah, so academic Canada we're we're taught to review articles, we're taught to write in a very particularly academic style. 
we're taught to try to publish as much as we can to keep our nose clean and to present as much as we can. And so academic institutions end up being quite inward looking often. And it actually requires real effort for people to acquire the skill sets necessary to interface with a policy process or policymakers. So things that we often cover in our training programs are things like communicating with media, uh, telling the stories instead of including so many, you know, lists of facts, choosing policy targets, because a lot of the time what people will come out with, say, say we work on climate change or what have you. And, and this was my first reaction too. I did a bunch of reading on climate change. And then I was like, we need to solve climate change. And I just kind of wandered around stressing people out about climate change. And that doesn't work. We actually, if we want to make change, we do need to keep an eye out for essentially the biggest target that we have a chance of making change with regards to given our team and the amount of uh, sort of inputs that we have at a given moment and what is evidence-based. And so that requires a whole other degree of sort of strategic thinking, team building, communications training, uh, resourcing. It requires an actual system. And so it, it can be overwhelming to people who don't have that training because they'll sort of try, but because the training doesn't exist, there's a lot of trial and error that's inefficient and it can be discouraging for people. And so then they just kind of stop. And if they're not getting support from their own department, they can feel uh, that they're being labeled as quote unquote, an activist academic. And then that can make them even more scared to try the next time. And so Katie Gibbs, for instance, who runs Evidence for Democracy has put a lot of thought into this, into how to normalize this kind of work for academics. So she encourages people to do things like if, the, if you see your colleague putting an op-ed in a paper to send them a little note saying, hey, good work, um, to, to really celebrate colleagues who are doing that, to provide a bit of solidarity, to make it seem less scary. But I think, you know, we need to encourage academic institutions to align their incentive structure with what we pretty desperately need from academics at this point in time, you know, a lot of this comes down to courage. And so how do we provide academics with both the incentive and the solidarity required to overcome uh, the courage sort of ask, as well as the time ask involved in asking them to help influence our, our public life? So that's great. How, how are you going to do that? Uh, if you are the successful candidate in the Green Party leadership, how do you envision reaching out to the academic community when we are in such a divided time in our history where even with the most prominent evidence you have about climate change, there are still deniers out there who will say, it's a fad, it's, not, it's a hoax, it's just some way to scare people to stop using gasoline. How will you be able to connect with Canadians from coast to coast to coast, as well as bringing the most honest evidence-based information to them and getting them to agree to it? So I think, so two things. 
Yep. I have the advantage of I already know a bunch of the academics, both in Canada and internationally. So I've been able to reach out and say, hey, I'm doing this. Would you mind telling me what you know about well-being budgets? And would you mind peer reviewing my platform when I when it's ready to go? And I'm trying to create actually a circle, a nonpartisan circle of advisors. And I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's worth a try. So, so far, I've asked quite a few people and maybe 25% of them have been willing to, everyone said, sure, I'll help you. But about three quarters of them are scared to have their, their name associated with something partisan. And I've been finding that actually it's often the older academics who are sort of like, you know what? caution to the wind. We need to get things done here. Sure, put my name on your website. But I think that we need to normalize spaces where it's safe for people to know that they're involved on a fact-checking and an idea provision uh, basis. Because if we can't create those spaces, like I would rather know that a politician ran their ideas past people, you know, regardless of whether, you know, it doesn't, like it's either going to be consistent with the evidence base or not. It doesn't have to indicate you can have three parties that have a similar policy that's consistent with the evidence base. It definitely doesn't need to be partisan, Um, but it's either, you know, inaccurate or accurate. And so I'm trying to create that space. I don't know if it's going to work, but I figure it's worth a try. And meanwhile, um, I'm a member of the Planetary Health Alliance uh, Steering Committee, which is based out of Harvard. And what I'm encouraging um, to be developed is an expert bank. So, um, you know, really any institution, we could do this in Canada too, could get a bunch of experts to sign up, sort of create a profile. And with the agreement being, hey, you agree if either a politician or media reaches out to you to give some time to explaining your area of expertise. And it could be sort of an easy sort of one-stop shop if you have a question about whatever you can, you know, go to that website, search for, you know, some, and then, you know, those are the things I'm thinking about. In terms of connecting with Canadians, I think that we have, and I say this as a member of the, you know, I've been doing this for a while. We spent too much time scaring everybody and not enough time presenting solutions. You know, if, if I had a, patient in front of me in the emergency department and I had just done a a chest x-ray and found something in there that was worrisome and I spent 95% of my interaction with them telling them how horrible this thing was that they had and 5% saying oh well like trying to detail the the (laughs) treatment plan imagine they'd be terrified they wouldn't come back they wouldn't want to talk to me right And so I think that we haven't done a good job of taking people's mental health into account, of taking actual humanity into account in the types of solutions we propose. Yeah. So in terms of connecting with Canadians, I think we need to provide people with the solutions that they require in order for them to be able to envision participating in the low carbon economy in an economy that is consistent with planet health. And so we haven't done a good job of that at all. When I'm, you know, picturing myself, what is the on-ramp? So I, I, for instance, own a farm in Manitoba 
and it's part of the family farm. And my grandma passed away a few years ago. And so I, you know, my mom died a long time ago. I'm very attached to this land because it feels like it's part of my mom. And so I've been trying to uh, transition my little part of the family farm to organic, which has meant that I've had a lot of conversations with farmers. And then you start you know, you start to really appreciate how difficult it is to leave the industrial agriculture economy. It's so corporate driven. Um, you start to like the huge input costs. And so, so they have discomfort when they think about the evidence around pesticides. They know, you know, their kids are living there. Um, they know that there's some evidence around potential health impacts. Like so many things in environmental health, none of this evidence base is complete because just like with the menstrual cups, uh, there wasn't much in it for anybody to, from a money perspective, go to the study to look at what the health impacts have been. So essentially, environmental health is chronically understudied. But they're, they're aware that it you know, might not be great, but they don't have an on-ramp to doing it in a different way. And so it's difficult to accept some of the evidence. And I can't blame them for that because accepting it would mean that they have to realign their entire lives with a different way of doing things without having tools for that. And so I think that we need to do a much better job at having those conversations with people from a range of different backgrounds and and jobs so that we can really figure out, okay, so this is where we want to go. What are the barriers between that path and where you are now? And how can we fix those with our resources. And that's possible because, you know, we're subsidizing fossil fuels right now with billions of dollars every year. So it's not like the resources don't exist in our public coffers. We're just allocating them in a way that is not consistent with a healthy outcome for our kids. So we can change that. And so, you know, I have this farmer who is, uh, he showed me a picture of the super swanky tractor that he's going to use. Someone's loaning him this particularly swanky tractor to sow the organic buckwheat. And I said to him, well, you know, like imagine if we could electrify those, you know, what is your, what do you pay per kilowatt hour in Manitoba? Not compared to what we pay up here for uh, electricity and the NWT, we pay like between 30 and 40 cents per kilowatt hour. So, you know, when I think about Manitoba electricity prices, that's just the land of opportunity as far as I'm concerned. And so, you know, how do we figure that out? So how do we build out electric vehicle infrastructure across the the country? How do we have loans that favor um, electric uh, tractor and how do we do that over the next 20 years and just trans transfer all of that work to electricity it's it's like many countries would be very excited to have that opportunity in terms of that abundant supply of hydro at, at good prices so you know I think that there's a lot and the more that you can make it clear that it's possible for people to participate in the vision the easier I think our conversations will get in terms of you know belief which is great. Now, the question that then goes into it, how does the Green Party connect with voters, though? How will a Green Party under Dr. Howard's leadership connect with voters from coast to coast to coast? Because we see uh, in every election that I've covered since 1997, uh, well, 2004, let's say, when the Green Party sort of became the more prominent uh, party as it is today, they do extremely well at the beginning of the campaign because everyone wants to vote for them. 
them. Everyone wants to vote for their conscience and they want to vote for environmental issues. By the end of the campaign, people are scared to vote for that way because A, they want to strategically vote against the liberals or against the conservatives. So how does a Green Party under Dr. Howard's leadership keep those voters in the Green Party tent, keep them through the entire election, but also connect with them during out of election seasons? So, you know, I, I'm new to politics. And so I've been connecting for the last couple of months, almost nonstop with people. And what I find is that people are deeply worried. We know from any number of uh, scientific publications that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century. And I've published a lot of policy papers, as you know, and participated in some of the world's biggest research uh, sort of studies that essentially show that in order to protect the health of a child born today and ensure that they even have the healthcare system that we depend on in the latter half of the century, we essentially have two sprints. We have an adaptation sprint. We need to accept that it is going to be about two degrees Celsius warmer here in Canada by mid-century, no matter what we do now, um, just according to the greenhouse gas emissions that we've already emitted and that are part of, you know, policies that we can't now switch fast enough to, to alter. So we need to revamp our hospitals and make sure that we can cope with wildfire season so that the smoke doesn't make us shut down our ORs, which happened here. We need to make sure they're flood proof. We need to make sure that our vulnerable elderly are able to uh, have people check on them during heat waves. So we have an adaptation sprint. And then we have a mitigation sprint because if we want to stay on that plateau mid-century instead of keeping the rise until the end, um, we have to emergently decrease greenhouse gas emissions. And if we don't, you know, when we look at what that means for a child born today, Nick Watts, who is the head of the Lancet Countdown on Climate Change and Health, was asked a couple months ago, well, what does that mean if we keep going? And he just said, you know, it's just, it's going to be catastrophic. I think what we'll eventually see is more failed states, uh, you know, sort of multiplying uh, areas of failed states. We'll see more conflict. Our borders will become um, difficult to pass. We'll see logistical supply chain interruptions, sort of like what we've seen with the pandemic. I think this pandemic has really made clear to us how vulnerable our globe is really to disruption. And so the pandemic, um, as you know, results from a virus that made the leap from animals into humans. And so to me, it's really the, the biggest wake up call we've ever had that we need to pay deep attention to the interface between humans and the next the rest of the natural environment. And so for me, and we also know that climate change will drive um, further uh, movement in different disease vectors and in different uh, animal habitat to put them into novel proximity with humans. So climate change really actually makes further pandemics more likely too, on top of everything else. And so we're in the middle of crisis. We don't like crisis. We can see that we're more vulnerable to it than we thought. We need to make sure that we use all of our common funds and energy right now to build back in a way to prevent further crisis. And that means we need to address both the pandemic, its economic fallout, and the climate and biodiversity related crises that make further pandemics more likely. And so what I'm seeing, I've done a lot of work on eco-anxiety and ecological grief and the interplay between action and anxiety. And the bottom line, and this has been my personal experience as well, is that it feels better to act than to be anxious. So coming together in community 
to solve the problems feels way better. Uh, you, you make connections with people. There's some of the same benefits as there are to support groups and in, in other parts of sort of, uh, you know, mental health and wellness care. And then you get that good feeling that comes from actually accomplishing something. And so I think that we've reached a threshold um, in the last, we were almost, we were really there pre-pandemic as well uh, in terms of how climate change is landing in people's bodies now in terms of wildfires so many people have now experienced more than one wildfire season that was deeply uncomfortable for them and their kids they say to me things like you know is this the way it's going to be forever is this a new normal and i have to say having researched wildfires i'm sorry it's not a new normal we're getting warmer inevitably for the next couple of decades like it's going to get worse we need to prepare for this to be worse and so when they understand that and they can envision okay worse and now what if what if we end up on that continuous increase in the end of the century, we're not going to be able to cope with that in a way that's going to feel even remotely healthy. And so the those embodied impacts are starting to really lodge in people's bodies in a way that's ratcheting the work up their personal hierarchy of importance. And so now what I'm really feeling and particularly having announced, like the amount of energy that's come my way since we, you know, announced my candidacy has been almost overwhelming. I've had offers of help from all across Canada. People have said this gives me so much hope. And what I'm what I'm really feeling is that people are ready to do the work. We we feel that deep that deep, not good feeling of there is a job that he's doing and it's urgent. And I think people are now looking for how do they plug in? And so how do they support that work in a really practical way and get involved? And the, the beautiful thing about that is that that's what's going to feel good. That's what will feel good for families because there's evidence um, coming out of pre-pandemic that kids are getting really worried about climate change. And so I've had a lot of questions, you know, as a parent, what do I do? And what the best evidence we can find is, is that your kids need you to level with them because if the message given within the family is different than the message that the kids are getting outside, it leads to a lack of trust. And that's the last thing we want to do, right? We, we want our kids to know that we, we, we understand what's going on in the world and we're doing everything we can to protect them as parents. And so family sort of oriented climate action is the best way that we can, you know, protect our kids' mental health and keep them feeling as though the world and adults are protecting them, which has all sorts of benefits in terms of their mental health. So I think that the way we connect with Canadians, I, I think it's going to be I think Canadians are waiting for this message and this connection. And I think that everybody wants to build a healthy planet for our children. And right now, what I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is actually the straight up organizing. So how do we create an excellent structure within the Green Party to harness all of this? How do we make sure that our policy bank is evidence-based and ethics-driven? What's the, what's the process there? How do we make sure that we're recruiting the best candidates from across the country, people who understand how to speak with people who care, who are well-connected, who can get the job done? You know, people who may have been uh, politicians at other la- levels of government, people with science training, really diverse voices. We know that in order to have the best ideas at the table, we need the most diverse candidates. I've, you know, I've been at enough 
big tables now. I've, you know, I've been on the board of the Canadian Medical Association, which is the biggest board in Canada, um, you know, multiple international uh, steering committees. And what I've noticed is that everybody brings their journey to the table. And so there's just no way that I could ever come up with the ideas that somebody who, for instance, was born in Inuvik and spent part of their life on the land uh, as part of an Indigenous family would know. They just know different things than I do, and they're going to bring different ideas to the table. And in order for us to have the best solutions at this moment in time, which is a pretty critical moment in human history, we need to make sure we have the best ideas at the table so we don't have as many blind spots because those are dangerous. And so I think that if we recruit diverse candidates, um, really credible candidates, we have a we have the ability to consult some of the the best people in terms of our actual campaign strategy. I think that we could, I am, I'm building it as though people are coming because I think they are. Yeah. I started this, uh, about, about 36 hours after we launched and I, I felt that energy coming back at us. I had a real, whoa, we better like build it cause they're coming feeling. Now, why do you think that is? What what about you do you think is attracting Canadians to your campaign? Because I, I, before every interview I've done with all your former, all your cam, uh, cam, uh, cont- uh, con- the candidates running for the leadership and the former candidates, one who I talked to as well, I, I looked at their profiles and I looked at their social media engagement and who was retweeting. And when, when the announcement came out, uh, I think last week or the week before, the spark that sort of went from coast to coast to coast was huge. What, what do you attribute that to? Is it your background? Is it your personality? Is it your ability to get on that large stage and talk about these issues that people want to talk about? I think it's all of those things. I think I've also lived in a lot of places. So there are a lot of Canadians who actually know me. There, I have seen thousands of Canadians at the bedside. People have been up in the middle of the night problem solving with me in multiple provinces. And, you know, that that's so many hospitals, so many nurses, so many leadership councils, so many presentations, so many community groups. And so... I think that, number one, I've just been doing a lot of work in Canada in a lot of different places over quite a number of years. And I think a lot of that work has resonated with people on a day-to-day basis. And so starting from that sort of um, just basis of real relationship. And then I do really try to do a good job at the craft of evidence-informed storytelling. I have a lot of training and evidence, and I also have a certificate in creative writing from Humber College, and I have a degree in dance. So it's an odd combination of nerdiness and actual training in the craft of, of communicating that doesn't exist with that many people. And so I think that that combination of things is helpful. I, I, I've had a lot of people tell me that they can tell I really care. And that's something that has been reflected back to me ever since I was a medical learner. Um, my preceptors would, you know, give me a, you know, the, the 
sort of feedback and they'd say, you know, patients can tell you really care. And I think that that helps you connect with people. And that's very true for me on a, you know, a very personal basis, but also on a broader basis. And so I think that those are the elements, but I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with just this moment in time. I think we're ready for this message. I think people are ready to do the work. I think they can tell it's going to feel good to do it. And I think that we can see that creating a healthy future for our kids is actually probably the thing that will most help us come into our own power and fulfill what we can each contribute to the world. I think in some cases, our, um, I, there was a, uh, something on Twitter a couple days ago, and it was talking about some people's um, reaction to uh, some of the protests. And they said, people have found purpose. You know, for so many years, for, for decades, we have been essentially sold the myth that our purpose is to consume. And that myth has been driven home in so many different ways. And I think that it's been felt kind of empty to a lot of us, but there hasn't been maybe a big enough need for our energy pulling us into a different path. And now it's really clear that there is. And I think that when we unleash that and we harness our energies in alignment with one another and with a vision, that's incredibly powerful. And I think that that's the moment we're at right now. And I think that I've, you know, I've spent a decade articulating a vision of a healthy planet for healthy people. And I think that people, I think it's clicking with people. And I think that they're excited to align their energies with that vision. Now, politics can be a uh, uh, pure contact sport in some sense. You, if you were a chosen leader in October in Charlottetown or where, however the Green Party decides to do their uh, uh, convention as of COVID-19 has changed the rules around social gatherings, you will be going up against Justin Trudeau, potentially Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay, Jugmeet Singh. Uh, how, how are you going to be able to go up against... Do you envision going up against them and saying, you know what, your side is wrong? Because like I said, the Green Party traditionally does well at the beginning of a campaign, does traditionally worse at the end because of strategic voting. You will need to prove yourself against four, well, let's put it this way, four men. And how are you going to do that? And I, I hate to use that word for men, but for politicians who have gone through an election, have gone through a federal election, you will be the first newcomer who has never run for a riding and never run in a campaign. So how are you going to do this? So I have more experience uh, in conflict than many people would anticipate just because emergency departments are not always <laughs> sort of the smoothest running places. And so I am not at all new to asking humans to do something that's not what they want to do. And I'm not at all new <laughs> to picking the phone up at two in the morning and waking somebody up and having a difference of opinion. And so I found that when I started in emergency medicine, I often got the comment, I think you're going to have to be less nice if you're going to be an emergency doc. And I've totally not found that to be true. 
It is perfectly possible to change people's opinion while being respectful. And I've now, you know, I've, I've, uh, it was a mostly male dominated field when I started. It's no longer that way, but I'm certainly no stranger to those types of assumptions. I have passed, I think I've probably passed more motions of the Canadian Medical Association General Council than any other doc I can think of of my age in Canada. There may be one or two, but not a whole heck of a lot. And those can sometimes be quite, um, heated debates. And I was certainly part of many heated debates and well, I ended up passing a lot of motions. So, you know, so I won a lot of those debates. Um, you do not hold a seat in the House of Commons. Uh, will you be looking for the first opportune time if you are the successful candidate for the leadership to run in a by-election to get elected? Or will you wait for the riding that you are currently in, the Northwest Territories, to run in that election in the next general election if Michael McDonald doesn't step down? I think that that ends up becoming a bit of a party decision. If you are elected leader, I would love the opportunity to run here. My husband and I consider this home. It's where my kids were born. He is a pediatrician here. He's stepping down as leader of the uh, hospital, as the hospital medical director, to essentially support this campaign. But we have really deep roots here, and I love this place. And so I would love to be able to run here, but I understand that, you know, once you're the leader of a party, that may not be the most strategic thing for the party. And so we, you know, are entering into this with our eyes open that it's a possibility that we may not be able to run here. And so we'll just have to see. Awesome. Now we're about to move into my favorite part of the uh, the interview: policy. I love policy. I'm a policy wonk. Uh, just I enjoy it a lot. Um, on a serious note, uh, as someone who lives in northern Canada, you have seen and worked side by side with Indigenous communities of all backgrounds. Do you believe Canada has failed our Indigenous communities? I believe we have a lot of work to do to create a present that honors our Indigenous people. It's impossible to overstate up here how much of an impact colonialization and residential schools have had on the people that I see on a day-to-day basis. It's part of the... um, when we get locums who come into the emergency department and we sort of orient them, it, it is talking about that is a part of my orientation. And I sometimes get locums sort of looking at me as though, you know, of course, like I should know that. I'm like, actually, no, we're going we're gonna to emphasize this. We're going to talk about this because it was, it was years really before I understood the depth of it. And I think I finally realized that I'd, I'd achieved a different level of understanding when I had an interaction with a woman who had experienced a lot of substance abuse and her niece had just had a tragedy in the family and was was drinking a lot herself. And this aunt on a Tuesday brought her niece in to the emergency department around lunchtime saying, my niece needs help. And... All I saw in that, like, I almost got tears in my eyes at how much 
love and effort was required on behalf of the aunt, given where she was at her that moment in her life to get her niece into the emergency department at that moment. And I realized all I was, all I was actually seeing in that situation was resilience. And it took me eight years up here to see resilience in that situation as opposed to tragedy. And that was sort of the moment where I thought to myself, okay, maybe I sort of understand this situation now. And so we, I think that the conversations around systemic racism are difficult for, for Canadians right now. And we had a lot of conversations like that in the healthcare system uh, when the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations came out a few years ago. And it was really helpful for me to see the studies that just show that, for instance, you know, if you're an Indigenous person and you present to emergency departments, you're actually less likely to end up with an angiogram than somebody who isn't Indigenous. And so to have those stats show you, you know what, this is an implicit bias that we don't know that we're bringing to our, our, our work, but it's there. And we, we had several excellent Indigenous speakers say, you know, we know that people don't go into healthcare and I'm sure they don't go into policing and don't go into teaching and all these different areas to be a bad person. We know you want to help, but we do need to develop the insight that we do have these implicit biases. And so it doesn't mean we're bad people, but it does mean we need to change and we need to create systems that can help us undo some of that thinking. And so I think uh, it's good that we've started these conversations over the last little while. And I know that people are really wanting to do the work because I do believe that Canadians want to treat one another better. And so it's a difficult time, but sometimes, you know, achieving the right diagnosis, which is, you know, that we have systemic racism is a first and difficult and necessary step to creating a treatment plan that actually works. And so I think that's where we're at right now. Now, one of the uh, major documents that uh, the United Nations is trying to get uh, countries to adapt is the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous People. Uh, Do you believe that that should be implemented in Canada? Yes, it absolutely should be implemented in Canada. It should be a priority for us. Now, the question I have to follow up with that then is, why can't Canada come up with its own uh, uh, declaration for the rights of Indigenous people? Why does, because most people in Alberta, let's be honest, I'm the Alberta uh, uh, politi- uh, the podcast, so I'm going to have to ask, talk about Albertans, but uh, when I speak to Albertan from cr- uh, coast to coast, they say, we shouldn't have to worry about the United Nations, we should be fixing it with a made in Canada solution. Why should we rely on the United Nations in this instance? Well, we already committed to it, first of all. So that's one thing. And that, that document took over 20 years to be negotiated and we participated in that entire process. And so we participated in the process and then we held off ratifying it for a while or approving it. And then we finally went ahead and did it. And yes, we most definitely need to look very carefully at figuring out how to implement that into our legislation so it's all consistent and cohesive. And I think that it's just a matter of establishing best practices and it should definitely be something that we do as soon as we can. Awesome. Um, now, now to talk, uh, talk about yet again, the Alberta question. I'm assuming you are prepared for this question. 
Alberta is a major reliant uh, province on its natural resources. Traditionally, uh, the Green Party has not been in favor of building pipelines, getting our uh, our natural resources to market through pipelines to tidewater. We've seen in the last week a oil spill of, if I'm not mistaken, and quote me if I'm wrong here, 150,000 uh, uh, tons, if I'm not mistaken, of oil bitumen spilt in uh, just lower lower mainland BC. What is your opinion on uh, our natural resources of fossil fuels and getting it to tide market? So we need to provide more on-ramps to people in Alberta into a new way of doing things. And so we know we're, we're only just starting to have those conversations at sort of the level that they need to be at. And so I was really happy to see the investments in the uh, orphan well cleanup that's happening. I think that makes a lot of sense because I, I, you know, we go camping in Alberta quite often. And so I know that Albertans love their gorgeous natural spaces and also want to be able to enjoy those natural spaces that are close to home. And so for having, you know, farmers who have orphan wells on their property that are leaking or making them, you know, worried about potential pollution, let's clean those up, you know, and let's clean those up while there's still a little bit of money coming in from fossil fuels in order to fund that work. Because I think the real risk right now is that, you know, because we don't control the price of oil. And so given that, um, you know, and we also know that the a lot of the resources in Alberta are more expensive to um, sort of bring to the consumer than other places and are higher carbon than a lot of other alternatives. And so there are academic analysis that show that, you know, our reserves are, are likely to be some of the first to be left in the ground. And so this is one of those situations where we're in an awkward position, but I think it makes the most sense for us to be looking at it with really clear eyes because that's going to help us set ourselves up for the best future for everybody. And so um, I think that we need to be really prioritizing. I I live within great, you can actually see it from (laughs) my back, my back deck here. Um, Well, there's leaves on the trees now, so it's tougher. But basically, right across there is um, a giant mine. And so this water body is back bay. And so within sight of my back deck is uh, the giant mine reclamation site. There's enough arsenic trioxide in there, apparently, to kill almost every person in the world. And it's, as you can see, within a wimpy person's stone's throw from back bay, and this is Great Slave Lake. This is the 10th largest freshwater lake in the world and the origin in the Mackenzie River. And so as Canadians, we are currently right now paying a billion dollars between now and the end of the century for essentially a non-solution cleanup of this mine because it turns out that humans don't actually know how to clean up a whole bunch of arsenic without hurting ourselves and we can't not do anything about it because it's so close to the lake. That's a billion dollars for a non-solution. <laughs> and so that's what happens when industry goes bankrupt before the cleanup is done. And so when I think about um, what's happening down in Alberta and a lot of you know the oil sands, um, tailings ponds are, are within 
a wimpy person stones throw of one of the water bodies that feeds into this lake, the Athabasca, that is uh, an epic cleanup job that we need to get done right now while there's still some money coming in. And so when I think about, um, you know, Alberta, I think it's a moment of huge transition. But as I've said before to some of the docs who serve in Alberta, you know, sometimes I've had conversations with doctors in Alberta and they've said, hey, like, I, I really don't feel good. Um, you know, talking about oil and gas, because I feel like I'm voting against my patients if I say something about climate change. And I have my, my, my thoughts are that it's not a kindness to people to not level with them. Because if we do, it gives people their best opportunity to position themselves in a way where their investments, their training, their kids schooling is aligned with a future, which, with the future that's most likely to happen. Um, we don't control the rate of technological innovation. That's happening elsewhere. You know, the world is transitioning whether we like it or not. And so we need to be ready for that. We need to be, and we need to make sure that we have our people trained up for that future, that we have our, our, our land cleaned up so that we're not being dragged back for decades and decades and decades with public money going into the, the cleanup of, of something that could have been done by industry. Um, and we need to make sure that uh, we're, we're taking care of everybody as we go. And so I think we're, we're at a period of immense transition. I think that there's a need for a lot more conversations about how we do that um, in a way that keeps food on the table for everybody the whole way along. And I think that the more we can have those conversations in a really understanding way, the better chance we're going to have to have an, have outcomes that keep families safe throughout. Now, to hit our Paris Accord climate change targets by 2030, um, there's going to be ha there, there's going to need to be drastic changes. There's going to be uh, increases in the quote unquote uh, carbon tax that we currently see under Justin Trudeau. Uh, my first off the cuff question here is: Do you believe in a carbon tax? Yes, yes, I do. Now the I, question. Okay, go ahead before I ask my next question. Oh, I was actually one of the people who pulled me into some of this work was actually an economist up here, and so we we did uh, presentations called "A Carbon Tax for What Ails Us," and we played to sold out library meeting rooms across the north. Um, but then actually went on to pass a motion at the Canadian Medical Association General Council asking the CMA to support uh, carbon pricing because that's what the Lancet and economists tell us is by far the most efficient way for us to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. And when we do that, we, we also decrease air pollution, which saves lives immediately. And so there's, there's modeling studies that have been done in other countries that show how many deaths will be saved at different levels of carbon pricing. We haven't done those in, in Canada, but, but those opportunities exist. So yes, I'm very much in favor of carbon pricing. Okay, so now the question then becomes, if you are in favor of a carbon price, a price on carbon, does it not disproportionately affect rural communities and northern communities? The higher you uh, charge for a carbon price, the higher you charge for a carbon uh, levy on uh, gas, on emitters, you are going to pass that down to the day-to-day -day Canadian, 
and they are going to see a cost of living increase, whether it be their food that they see at the grocery store or their gas that they need to drive to a uh, urban center, uh, particular if you're in northern Alberta, you have to drive to Edmonton. If it's higher in cost of uh, for gas, it's going to cost you more to do things. How do you justify to Canadians that a price on carbon is the right thing to do while also saying, yes, you're going to have to pay more for day-to-day living? Well, I think, first of all, that a revenue-neutral carbon price is the way to go. You know, so that How do you we, do that? Well, yeah, good question. And so as a rural, remote human, I've certainly spent a lot of time at decision-making tables in Toronto or Ottawa where the needs of rural and remote people are not even remotely considered. And so that's actually been my role many times to say, okay, so what are we... Because often not a single policy will be proposed that has anything to do with where I live. And so I think that we need to be taking a look at this on a really systemic basis. So what if instead of having bought a pipeline, we had invested in electric vehicle infrastructure across all of the highways? And what if we had, what if we change uh, the way we do loans for, for vehicles to make it easier to subsidize essentially electric vehicles? There's no reason for us to be not doing that. We, we need to be doing those kinds of things immediately. And so there's ways of, of building the structure of your carbon tax in and what you do with those monies that help facilitate the systems change that are essentially required so that people don't end up needing to spend money on the gas. You know, I've had a lot of conversations I, I, was, I was saying with, you know, the farmers about, okay, well, so how do we, what would it take for us to help you switch over your, um, you know, all of these big expensive combines and tractors that you've got to something that runs on electricity that is easy for you to access because there's a charger right there. Right now, we've just, we've been betting on one way of doing things. And if we switch our public resources and bet on the other way of doing things, we can reduce these barriers for people. you, we still haven't come to the conclusion of how do we pay for it. How, are you in? Are you uh, advocating for raising taxes on the richest one percent, two percent in Canada to pay for a offset of a carbon neutral uh, price? I think that we definitely need to allocate our resources differently. And yes, I think a one percent a tax on uh, the top one percent in terms of wealth is a really good idea. So that's not going to pay for everything, but it's certainly part of what we need to do. We know that inequality is bad for everybody's health. It's bad for rich people. It's bad for poor people. And we can change that. And so really, um, if you if you look at uh, and and it's difficult to get numbers on exact nobody nobody agrees on fossil fuel subsidies and exactly how much we've been spending you know you can go down a very deep internet rabbit hole on that however we we know that we've been spending lots and so we've been propping up an industry there's a small business owner in, in, in Yellowknife and he says, I don't think you get to be subsidized anymore as an industry if you've existed for over a hundred years. I thought that was an interesting sort of point of view. You know, he said, okay, well, like if you're starting up and you're getting going and you need some help, okay, fine. We will subsidize you. But if you haven't got your, got it sorted this far in, you know, 
him as a small business owner does not think that that makes any sense. And so when you add in the fact that, I mean, we can't have economies if, like, we've just seen how bad crisis is for the economy. And the World Economic Forum tells us that climate change is the thing both in terms of of probability and in terms of um, severity that is most likely to cause further economic crises. And so in no world are we going to end up being richer or more well-off continue to invest in the thing that is the most likely to cause the next economic crisis. And so, you know, we, we, we need to change how we're allocating our money and we can do that. We, we could be talking about policy for the rest of the hour, but we actually only have three minutes left in the hour. So in all transparency, I give all the candidates one hour, but I do give the last two minutes to pitch yourself. So at the last count, I had 905 people who are, are active subscribers to the podcast. So, and they range from coast to coast to coast. And for some reason, Australia, thank you to my listeners down under. Uh, but why should people take out a membership in the Green Party of Canada and support Dr. Courtney Howard? So the Green Party of Canada is at a moment of incredible transition. We have the opportunity to become the evidence-based, ethics-driven, action-oriented party that Canada needs that doesn't have a whole bunch of baggage in terms of our attachment to special interests who are dragging us towards any one or any other policy maneuver. I think I'm the best placed person to, to lead the party because I think that climate hasn't ever really resonated from uh, what does this mean for my life perspective. However, health does. We know from communication studies that the best way to communicate what climate actually means to people is to talk about health. It means wildfires and asthma and evacuation and post-traumatic stress disorder and Lyme disease and conflict and malnutrition. That means something to people and it's motivating to them. We also know, and so that's the framing that works the best across audience segments into very much into conservative territory. And we know also that when we talk about protecting the health of the planet on behalf of our children, that is really, really important to people. And so I've spent my last decade of my life working at that intersection. I've taken care of Indigenous people up here. I spent six months resuscitating kids on a malnutrition project for Doctors Without Borders. I am deeply motivated by the need, also as a mother, to leave a healthy world for my kids. And so also from evidence, we know that the messenger matters. So the person telling the story really matters. And as a doc who's done the work, really, I think I can communicate that that uh, rationale in a way that is authentic and resonates and is just true to everything I've been and everything I've done. So I think that the coronavirus crisis has made it really clear to people that health crisis is tragic, it's disruptive, it's horrible for the economy, it's horrible for our health and well-being. And we know that in order to prevent further crisis, we need to take action on climate change. So what I'm sensing from people is a real willingness and a real desire to engage in that work. We, we've been putting it off. We know we can't. We know it's going to feel better to just do it. And I think that I'm the best place person to help to mobilize, to help to inspire that, that movement. And I'm excited to start. 
Awesome. Uh, Dr. Howard, I want to take this time and thank you once again to my listeners. Uh, the link to Dr. Howard's website and a link to join the Green Party is in the show notes. So just take a moment, uh, research Dr. Howard. I suggest following her on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm assuming you have. And just check out the website. And if you do feel like uh, supporting her, join the Green Party and be sure to vote. Uh, voting takes place at the end of September, right, Dr. Howard? Uh, it's the beginning of October, but yeah, you have to register though a month ahead of time in order to be able to vote. So there you go. You heard it right from uh, Dr. Howard's mouth. Uh, Dr. Howard, thank you once again for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. It's lovely to lovely to chat with someone uh, from a little further south. Thanks for your interest. It's been a fun hey. conversation. Thank you. And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week.